This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It was the best time of our lives. Getting money was all we ever did. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. Today I have with me Inez Stepman who is um, part of the Independent Women's Forum, which is a think tank. Um, And I actually want to ask you what a think tank even is. I still don't know. (laughs) And then uh, you're also a um, fantastic speaker and a fantastic writer. Um, I've been listening to you on podcasts all week, and you're extremely incisive and extremely insightful. Um, and your own podcast is called high noon, which is also a podcast like this where you interview people. Um, so welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. And for those repeated kind words, I told you off air, like if there was going to be, you were going to make me blush on air if you said such nice things about me, but I'll, I'll try to keep my rosacea under control. (laughs) Well, uh, well-deserved. So I guess I want to know who, so who are you? Like, where, <laughs> where did you come from? How did you come up and how did you become so based? Also, I just want to <laughs> like, kind of like start off by you're the only woman I've ever heard talk about hypergamy, which is this kind of red pill theory about female attraction, which we'll get to, but I'm just I just want listeners to know that you're like ultra based and ultra like on the same page as I think like a lot of the listeners of this show. So how did well, that happen? Um, I, I, in terms of being generally on the right, uh, my family fled from communist Poland. Um, and then we settled in Palo Alto, California, which is an extremely liberal place actually in the, in the, truer sense of liberal um they're both progressive but they also have that like deeply neoliberal kind of individualistic um utopian vision and i just found that to be uh, to produce people that i couldn't admire um and particularly actually to produce men that i couldn't admire but but women as well and uh so i think if you ask why i'm conservative it's certainly has something to do with that. Um, and unfortunately, these people and their culture run our world, right? It, it, I thought I could sort of leave Palo Alto and, and escape um, that culture. But unfortunately, that culture has caught up to us all. Uh, and I think we're very much swimming in the same cultural milieu, morass, whatever you want to call it, um, that I grew up in in Palo Alto. And I have deep, deep problems with it. Um, in terms of, of sort of the, the based side of things or whatever, uh, in terms of relations between men and women, I, I was sort of an early denizen of some of these uh, these blogs like Chateau Hartiste or whatever. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in the way that um, 
that worldview presents the relationships between men and women and uh, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man um, in relation to each other. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I have disagreements as well with that side of things, um, but we can get into that. But yeah, I think if, if you're asking why I'm talking about hypergamy, I probably have to give the give the credit to Chateau Hartiste. Yeah, so a ton of overlap between us. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I have a close family in Palo Alto, reformed Jews, and I know exactly what you mean. The men in particular, it's very difficult to admire because there's just these spineless people who don't believe in honor. They don't believe in anything. And uh, so I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I'm like you, you know, I grew up ultra, you know, from an ultra left milieu. My parents are professors and I just never, yeah, I never fit in with it. And I kind of rebelled against it. So the difference, though, is how did you come across Chateau Hartiste, especially as a woman? That seems crazy to me. Like, where did you, because I would, I missed that whole era, you know? Um, so I, I'm just wondering how you found it. Yeah. I, I don't know, honestly. Um, it was kind of a pre-Twitter era. And in fact, we were so uh, innocent in terms of how our regime is currently structured and where we're at. Um that I would have the blogs emailed as a subscriber to my formal university ID when I was in law school. And that was like, that didn't, I didn't think twice about doing that. I was like, Oh, it's my email. Like, um, I think that's, that's just shows the sort of innocence of the time. And this is probably back in like 2015 or so 2014. Um, no, I, 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 I don't remember how I came across it on the internet, but I, I do recall that it just, it made more sense. I'm, you know, not the, I'm probably more in my head than most people. Um, and it, it just was a model of male-female relations that actually explained a lot of the behavior of people as opposed to the way that they themselves would explain it. So I think generally coming to more socially conservative positions, um, and it started out more libertarian, I think, on social issues in college. I think a lot of people did. Um, but I, I think that observation of human nature and observing how people actually behave as opposed to how they um sort of rationalize what what they're doing uh and of course we have a blind spot when it comes to ourselves and we have all of our own rationalizations but it's easier to observe with other people and it just didn't it didn't map on to the way that people were actually behaving right i i could, I could see around me how women what decisions women were making uh my friends for example were making with the men that they would date and then versus what they would say and then the same thing on on the men's side right like um and so th this is a model of the world that just actually seemed to explain the decisions that people made that, in fact, you know, women desire certain things in men, um, men desire certain things in women. And and I guess the, the sort of background principle is I, I've always felt that being in a feudal fight with nature is extremely counterproductive and not useful at all um, in, in the same way that it's, it's completely counterproductive for um, women who are, you know, older or or obese to like deny the fact that this makes them less sexually attractive to men um and vice versa i think it's i think it's silly for men to deny that women find certain abstract qualities uh like dominance or power um or, or social facility to be attractive in men and i don't see the point in getting ragey about it I, either way i just i think um you know we, we sort of do the, the best we can with the hands that we're dealt and and our natures Right. So what do you mean fight against nature? 
I think we live in a time where we deny that sex is a real and important part of who we are. Um, and by that, I mean biological sex. Um, I, and I think you see that, of course, the most extreme version of that is, is transgenderism and, and denying that biological sex exists altogether. Um, but I actually think that's just the latest stop on the train. I think transgenderism is very much, and I've had disagreements with turf friends over this, but I think transgenderism is very much uh, a necessary uh, consequence of feminism. Um, and that, that if you go back to all four waves of feminism, going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, there is this idea that the sex differences are socially constructed. And the implication there is that we ought to deconstruct society um, in order to make us what we really are, which is equal and interchangeable in all important ways. Um, and now you have the did not, you have this big fight over, you know, whether we can actually rearrange our bodies and, and become the opposite sex, right? Um, but it's always seemed to me to be uh, to be inconsistent to deny, like to, to sort of affirm the sex differences below the neck, the obvious ones about, you know, sexual secondary sex characteristics and genitals. Um, the, the differences in our, our brains are just as scientifically undeniable. Um, the difference in our, our natures, the difference in our evolutionary imperatives, these things are also undeniable. Um, and I think the much more interesting question and, and the reason that we are so invested as a culture in denying those differences, I think, is because once you do accept those biological differences, it, it begs the question, um, or, or I'm actually misusing that. Phrase, yeah, but, I, right. Somebody yeah. <laughs> just begs the question. You yeah, can't say yeah, that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, what are you supposed to say? It raises the question. <laughs> right. It raises the question. Uh, trying to correct myself here. Um, yeah, it, yeah. it raises the question of what zero society HP, ought to do. <laughs> that was zero yeah. HP the other day. I said that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. It, it's, uh, it raises the question of what we should do about it. And, and I think it, it implies that, that there ought to be a way that society is arranged that respects and perhaps even amplifies um, sex differences. And I think that essentially that the folks who are um, afraid that men and women are biologically deeply different are, are right to be afraid because I think there is an implication. I don't think that uh, equality, social equality between men and women is actually a, a desirable or possible end. So what I completely agree on all points. And it, it is uh, it's funny to hear that that dates back to Mary Wollstonecraft, who she was like, a who was that? She was a very early feminist. And, and yeah, so my, my point in, in bringing her up was only this, that um, this isn't something that came about in the 1950s with uh, or 40s, even with Ferdon and, and um, before yeah. her uh, Simone de Beauvoir, right? Uh, one of the few smart people writing in this space, I think. But anyway, um, so it, it doesn't start there. There is this from the beginning in feminism, there is this, uh, this, th this quest to find out how much of male female differences are socially constructed and positing the, the possibility that actually quite a lot of it might be right. That underlying all these, these sort of social constructs and oppressions, men and women are actually very fundamentally similar. And there, there's, there's a definition I like to use for, for feminism, because of course there are these like different waves and, sex positive, sex negative, like there's a lot of divisions within feminism. Um, but I don't think a lot of people would disagree with the definition that feminism is uh, the hunt for political, economic, and social equality, right, between the sexes. And 
if if it's true that our biological natures are substantially different um that that's that's just an impossibility and in fact i think we're kind of starting to see all of the negative effects of trying to pretend that we are identical and interchangeable in these very fundamental ways and again i'm not talking just about like leah thomas swimming on the on the female team right um but for example pretending that men and women you know the, the societal message should be that men and women should pursue the same things in life right. uh, that they should find love the same way that they should approach sex the same way that they should approach family and career the same way um i think in, in some ways these things have all been more damaging much more damaging than uh you know who swims the 200 meter butterfly faster yeah it's the flattening out of everything and the the loss of the differentiation between the sexes which is really one of the most beautiful things to exist you know it's, if everything's the same then we have lost the beauty of the difference which is like where, where i believe like the you know i'm i'm a gnostic or whatever i think that's where like divinity lies in the differences between things um so i'm completely with you i guess uh you have a great in an, in another podcast you mentioned you just mentioned Simone de Beauvoir you said the reason why there there's a point that Simone de Beauvoir makes at a certain point where she's saying the female oppressed class can never has no hope of victory ever like no matter what <laughs> like right like she said something like that because there's too much sleeping with the enemy it's like it's simply impossible for women to ever like overcome uh, their oppression because it's just kind of, I guess they will always have to sleep with men. Is that, am I like kind of paraphrasing that correctly? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I think what she was saying is, is women can't separate themselves from men. Um, I think the sleeping right. with the enemy thing was, was right. my phrasing, but no, no, yeah, <laughs> my you interpretation, said that. Yeah, right. but, <laughs> yeah. but like, uh, no, she, she said that uh, the oppression that women face is different from, say, the oppression faced by Blacks or Jews, her two examples, yeah, right. because oh. the theoretically, um, these people can either kill or separate themselves from their oppressors and sort of live separately, right. whereas yeah. the human yeah. race, the continuance of the human race uh, relies on the fact that men and women continue to find each other um, and, and uh, procreate and, and perpetuate the species. Uh, and she says this is why women are particularly oppressed, right? This is why the oppression is is just so bad because it really can't have a, a, that kind of extreme resolution, even in theory. Right. Um, and it means that women are tied forever to their oppressors. But I mean, I, I just I, I I deny two things about this. One, I think the entire construct of of um, oppression and oppressed is is not in ninety nine percent of cases the correct uh, framework to talk about women and men. Um, and I agree much more with what you said initially, which is a few questions ago, which was that, you know, the differences between men and women give give uh, actually is what gives that like erotic spark and something that's interesting and beautiful to our relations. I don't think that oppression is the right uh, construct to think about that. Um, but but also it's it's it's, it's simply um, it denies the power of women in basically every civilization. Uh, and. <laughs> this is, here's a question that I like to pose to people, actually, which is, uh, how do you think the 19th Amendment got passed? Right. If if women were so powerless, okay. uh, 
you know, how is it that they got men to vote for the 19th Amendment, whether you think that was a good idea or not, right? It, it, the question is, do women have power even if the, the, the arrangement of society doesn't give them, for example, public political power? And the answer is obviously yes, right? Um, and there's a reason we have all these like, you know, Pollyan archetypes of female power. It's, 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 it's foolish. And actually I've found few people actually apply it to their own families, right? Um, I haven't heard a lot of people willing to admit that their grandmothers were like doormats and didn't have any way of standing up for themselves or had no power whatsoever that they exercised um, or, or their great grandmothers to the extent that they were lucky enough to know them. Uh, but they, they have no problem saying that as a class, women were oppressed before, you know, 1979 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is that more people, when they look at the relations within their own family, say, no, you know, my, my grandmother um, exercised a ton of power in the home. My grandmother was the neck that turned the head. My grandmother uh, was, you know, whatever, or she was a fiery, you know, feisty woman, right? Um, I, I, I don't think people apply these contrasts 99% of the time when they're talking about their own family. And that's because they don't actually describe, they don't describe how men and women actually interact with each other. So let me ask, do you think the 19th Amendment was the right way to go? Um, I think it had, probably has less importance than a lot of people think, right? So, but it, it went, it well, went through. I don't know. Through... You saw those numbers. You saw the whole, every elected official would be Republican if it wasn't for single single women, right? Well, look, I, I'd be willing to give up my vote for the, for the <laughs> exchange. Um, I think, but but I do think it's a very modern phenomenon to think of political power as channeling old, only through the vote. Um, and, and like I said, it doesn't solve the problem of how the, the 19th Amendment gets passed in the first place by the way it's one of several amendments that gets passed essentially through female activism right like so not just the 19th amendment but prohibition was prohibition part of the right same yeah movement, prohibition right? Was so female was a female thing right yeah yeah people don't so i i think that probably the vote is much less important overall than um where male and female sort of virtues are uh and and personality types and power is actually different types of power are actually expressed in society so um i mean this is related to like lomez's article about the the longhouse and and um heather mcdonald wrote something very similar i wrote something similar like years ago so it, it's funny to me that that article caused such a consternation because mainstream conservative outlets have been publishing something to this effect for a long time um so you know it's not to detract from from lomez's article which nicely summarized some of these things but um it, 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 the sort of outcry from Denine and others really perplexed me because there was nothing in that article that hasn't already been published um the the maybe it was the messenger but, you know maybe it was right it, it moment, seems right? like it's, yeah. it's purely gatekeeping yeah. um yeah. And, and the messenger rather than the message but right. um i think so in other words an answer to your question about the 19th amendment though i think the the question is um if you have a managerial bureaucratic society that and an economy that is going to reward certain types of quote unquote virtues or certain you know character traits um and the character traits that our current system honors and uh elevates are a particular type of warped femininity now whether they're being implemented by men or women um it's a particular application of something that that might in a different context be a very positive thing right like that like the difference between the mother who cares for her child and safetyism from the CDC are are two 
outlets of something very similar, a very similar impulse, but one is is appropriately directed within a loving family. And the other one is is a bureaucratic dystopian nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I think I, that's, well, that's why I think well actually the, the, the vote is yeah. if you look at the, the way that the modern vote splits, the real problem is single women. Right. No, so who break Jake de- break democratic. So in your maps with the, the 19th Amendment, for example, um, that show that in every election, Republicans would win that every election Republicans would probably win if ma- only married women could vote as well. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, right. So I, I think, again, I think all these things are more interconnected than the, the, the mere like flip of a switch. I think there's a lot of um, impulse out there to say if we just elect this one guy or we flip this one switch or we remove this one, you know, this one weird trick will fix the Republic. Um, yeah. And I think, unfortunately, our problems are deeper than that. So what I want to like unearth is, and I, I want to get later, I, I think you make some really good points about like the managerial class and safetyism and, and how um, the instinct towards safetyism is the a warped version of the female will willpower, right? And, and it's like uh, I think probably Nietzsche would even agree with that. Um, I guess like before I, we talk about like what we can do about any of this, I want to know, ask you like, why do when and why did women start to feel oppressed? Yeah, this probably, sounds like a really stupid probably question. Probably in the Garden I, I, of Eden. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Like, probably in the Garden of yeah, Eden. I, I don't like, know. <laughs> like, like, so women, they they ran the house, right? I mean, I, I also went to law school. And I remember, do you, do you went to law school, right? You were saying you did. So do you remember, the, like, one of the first cases, I don't know if it was the same for you, is this case in which, like, they, of course, because it's this liberal education, it's the first case they give you is the one where we took the land from the Native Americans. I think that's the first case they teach you, which was like Madison something. And then the next one was one about like the women, the role of women. And it was some justice in like 1900 being like, oh, yeah, women, women are too soft for work. And we, you know, of course, the right to work or whatever doesn't apply to them. Um. And it's like some yeah, I think case it wasn't you... part of the chain um, that ended up in Lochner, right? So some, or, or rather that chipping away at Lochner, right? So one of the first cases that was a victory for the labor movement um, was essentially the Supreme Court saying, no, we're not going to apply the Lochner standard, the idea of um, the right to work. We're, we're going to say that actually for women, you need, the state is allowed to regulate uh, hours and, and how much they should be required to lift and so on. Um Actually, it's, it's interesting if you one of the issues I work a lot on in IWF is the ERA, uh, Equal Rights Amendment, and it, the fortunes of that amendment, which was written in 1923, it, it have risen and fallen uh, in different ways over time. And so like, it's born out of this suffragette sort of uh, 19th Amendment um, essence, right in 1923, and it's written by one of the original suffragettes, Alice Paul. Um, and then... <laughs> It kind of dies for another uh, through through the 30s, through the 40s, kind of well into the 50s. Um, and you don't really see any agitation for it until you hit the 60s and then ultimately the big push in the 1970s. OK, why is it you would think, oh, like the conservatives won or something? No, it was a labor movement because this is this was the, the one. Um, so like Eleanor Roosevelt was completely opposed to the ERA because one of the few 
levers they had as a labor movement to actually get through the Lochner era in the courts was to um, to permit the states to regulate on behalf of women who, at that no disagreement, um, have were, were very different than men, and therefore uh, the court basically said, well. In this case, we think that the state should be able to intercede because women are different from men and, and um, women shouldn't be contracting or that they shouldn't be exploited in that way. They shouldn't be contracting for 80 or 90 hour weeks. Like um, even even if they're willing to sign that contract, there's something wrong with the, like there's nothing wrong with the state deciding we don't want to be that kind of society that, that uh, you know, allows women to contract for 80 hour weeks. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's just interesting to me, this interchange between um the, the sort of cultural vanguard uh, and the labor movement. Because I think in a lot of ways, we, we are finding ourselves in a, a similar situation where on the left, there are people who see the primacy of class or like traditional labor politics are splitting off from the concerns, which are increasingly of, of a sort of managerial elite, but is very, very culturally left wing. And those concerns predominate. It's very interesting with Biden, right? Like, um, all the output of his actual policy output of his administration is all on this cultural side and very much aimed at giving benefits also to that direct sort of upper middle class managerial class base. Uh, but then he, he spins it around as when he actually talks with his rhetoric, his last state of the union, et cetera. Um, he's always talking about it in terms of like traditional labor politics. And, um, you know, nobody seems to be willing to call him on the fact that it's, those two things are now on opposition to each other. So I'm not a hundred percent following. What is the, like, why is he, in what ways is he signaling traditional labor politics? I'm probably just not familiar enough with traditional labor politics to understand, but what is he like saying that indicates that? So um, for, for example, um, there, there was this, he, his first veto was just like, I don't know, three weeks ago, feels like a million years ago, given what's happened since then. But um, this is the first Biden administration veto is to keep in place a labor department regulation um, that his administration changed from the last one uh, about ESG and permitting ESG um, factors in, in like, for example, the government funds. Like, so your, uh, when your social security money gets invested, right? Um, do the, do the people investing that it, those funds have the, um, ability uh, to, to essentially jettison what would be a traditional fiduciary duty, right? Investing only yep. based on the financial return, or do they have the ability to take into account something like an ESG score, right? Um, and so Biden vetoed that. Well, no. So, so Congress, in a bipartisan bill, actually passed eliminating that regulation and saying, basically, no, we're not going to provide protections. You need to, you need to adhere to basic fiduciary duties, but in vetoing it, Biden didn't make the argument, which is what actually happened, right? Oh, this protects woke corporations, right? Uh, this protects uh, this this general financial system that is now making financial decisions and investment decisions and deciding, for example, which business to give a loan to based on this cultural agenda. Um, he said, no, I'm protecting working working men and women's investments. Right. And his his state of the union was very much the same. He's only touting spending programs like he he had one word about transgenderism in his entire speech. Right. Um, in primetime. But his actual administration and his remarks off of primetime are all focused on what you might call it. Just, I just think is like a too fluffy sounding a word, but like woke 
agenda items, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, he, I think he still gets that the rhetoric of the Labour Democratic Party is more popular than their cultural agenda. Um, so he, 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 I just noticed he frequently repurposes what are essentially cultural actions, cultural policies through sort of a labor politics. But I think just like in the ERA time in the 1940s, when, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt or 1930s, when Eleanor Roosevelt was opposed to the ERA, um, because, and, and Eleanor Roosevelt was a feminist, right? But she was first and foremost, a labor, labor leftist. And she recognized that actually doubling down on male female equality under the under the constitutional law uh, was going to set back the labor movement and so she was opposed to it right anyway this is just like different shades of the left i guess but um i i, I do think there's there's something there that there's a reason that um the the democratic party has is is losing its working class base um and i think that biden is one of the f- few people in the democratic party who can still at least fool people by talking about these things, whereas all the people who are coming in behind him, they won't even permit themselves to get off of, you know, um, race, sex, gender ideology, transgenderism, um, you know, systemic, blah, blah, blah. They won't allow themselves to get off of that train for one second, um, because every time, every moment they're not talking about that is is itself an impr- like a sort of a form of, of uh, oppression or whatever. It's going to become more like the NPR feed. And I think the Democratic Party may have some issues when that happens. Yeah, I think the Labour... Assuming piece... they haven't consolidated power to the point where they don't even need to win elections. Well, right, it, which is kind of like where we're at. Uh, I think the Labour piece is really important because there's a lot of like gravy train Dems who are legitimately just being paid. It's just the, the public, you know, they get... Uh, like, for example, I think there's a union of people who are stay-at-home caretakers of their own family members, right? So they get paid by the state to, like, do care of some kind. And then they join a public union. So they give dues to the public union, who then gives all to woke causes and all to Democratic people who raise the pay of the stay-at-home person right so that cycle of like self-dealing i think a lot of the labor is still clinging to the dems and a lot of the power of the dems the reason they can get away with anything is because they have those loops going like all over the place like a a friend of mine did a piece on karen bass's uh the money behind karen bass and it's all union it like so it's like packs and unions and they just get all the money they give her comes back to them and I think that that's like a, a big source of their power that people don't really talk about enough. Yeah, I mean it's 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 traditional machine politics, yeah, right? right. Um, yeah. It's it's which in some ways, I mean, so I, I live in New York City, and uh, I think traditional machine politics would actually be an improvement over right, right, yeah, over right, activism. Right. Um, no, but this is something Orrin McIntyre, uh, I think, has written and talked about at length. That I, I think in the correct way. I I, I don't actually see political patronage as the worst uh, evil now of, yeah, co- no, of course right. of course right. it, it can be corrupt um and often is corrupt uh and and produces its own you know uh negative consequences but i i think what's happened is something much worse where we have a a permanent bureaucratic class um 
of, of upper middle class professionals, largely, uh, both inside and outside of government, right? There's there's a sort of revolving door between academia, agencies, and like top tier uh, positions in Fortune 500 corporations, all of which are, some of them just pure political enforcement, right? Um, some of them just kind of BS email jobs, right? Oh, yeah. uh, and that that is an enormous amount of patronage. Sometimes it gets more direct, like the fact that Biden, like his student loan program is a direct payout to his base, right? Um, but we don't have those kinds of patronage networks. And I think it, under the guise of, of depoliticization, what's happened is is this like this space the, the space for actual capital p politics where i have a vision of the good and you have a vision of the good and we have a mechanism for resolving that um and it, you know either through a political process right in in our country it's it's through democratic elections depending on the issue or the state or the federal level right and that entire system applies let to less and less or i should say fewer and fewer of the important issues facing the country Right, where where we are not voting on what important decisions are going to be made, and the best example of this, of course, is is um, the Trump administration and the fact that the president was left out of incredibly high level um, foreign policy decisions, which is like you know the, the most obscene level, version of this, right? But it's very it, it always irritates me when people talk about oh, like I think Donald Trump made some very bad hires. Don't get me wrong, but they talk about like, oh, these are his FBI guys. These are what? No, the entire FBI is opposed to anyone who steps outside of the political parameters that they enforce as a matter of best practices. This is true in every agency. Um, and it is 100, 100 years or more in the making in terms of, of the administrative state. And that that permanence of power and self-dealing on the part of this this revolving class of, of professionals is actually what's governing the country. Yeah, right, right, right. So, I mean, I, I think it would be a good thing if we had more political patronage on the right. Like, I think it would be a good thing if we could fire half the people in the federal government and put in people into the federal government who are going to, to you know, actually advance the priorities of the people who voted for a president, a senator, right? Um, but that's not how it works. What happens is you change out a guy on the front of of like a, a um, boat the size of the Titanic, right? And he's got the rudder of a dinghy, and you know, yeah, he can kind of like maybe direct the ship of state like a couple iotas off one direction or this direction. But overwhelmingly, the thing goes in the same direction, and that direction is a political one. It's just an absence of any actual political control through the normal mechanisms of politics. One way, do you think that one way to do what you're saying and setting up some right? patronage networks which i i, I uh do you ever listen to good old boys podcast have you ever heard those guys they're in our scene they're cool they're like populist i had one of them on here the bog beef is his name he's super into this patronage idea he talks about patronage all the time and um so he's right on your same page he's been yeah we, we had an episode all about it do you think what DeSantis is doing with school choice is maybe a good way to to do this? Because, I, you know, with school choice, I think it's like vouchers, which the left is terrified of. But basically now, like if you're a Hasidic Jew in Florida, you can now get a voucher to pay your private Chabad school or whatever. I think that that's what school choice means. 
So maybe that's a way, you know, like, get, like starting up voucher programs for kids so that religious schools can get paid. Right. So I, I spent the first 10 years of my career working essentially in school choice and oh, in okay. education policy. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it, I think the essential idea is exactly that. It, it hasn't been hasn't been sold that way at all um, because it's always been sold as, as sort of a lifeline for those who are you know poor, or like assigned to terrible schools. And that, that, that's all true. And there's sort of an altruistic case to be made. Um but I think that's the reason that you're only seeing a huge explosion in school choice now is because we're making a direct cultural argument. We're saying you don't like you don't like the values your your kids are being uh, taught in this school. We are going to give you your portion of the public funds to direct towards institutions that are not hostile to you. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the the most sort of underrated aspect of this is it will, in fact, transform public schools as well. Right. If you think about the the parents, you know, hundreds of thousands of parents at this point who have gone gone to school board meetings across the country, most of them have discovered that actually that kind of like, you know, to show up at the school board meeting, first of all, they're totally dismissed. Right. It's really actually hard to change out. There, there are great folks trying to do this. Uh, Ryan Gadersky and, and his uh, 1776 pack and trying to do this to change out school board members. Right. Um but the reality is, uh, speaking of, of union power, uh, a lot of those elections are four percent turnout elections. If you have an organized force like a union, um, you can you can really like really run those elections. Um, and then even when we do win within the school board, you find imagine implementing everything that you want to do through the faculty lounge, because that's that is what you're doing, right? When you try to change the direction of a public school and you're trying to say, well. I don't want my like the, my teacher to pull this video on CRT and show it to my second grader, right? What, what you're actually up against is several layers of, so the teacher has gone through a school of education, which is to the left even of universities, right? So all the things we say about the general university sector apply even more so to the teacher's colleges. Um, so that's where you, you've come through and learned that this is what teaching is. Um, the union has added to that. All professional development has been in that direction. It's all, you know, uh, uh, crisis, like struggle sessions, right? Um, and so you're, you're, you're up against that. It, it, it's very, very difficult. All the district officers, everything, right? So it's really hard to actually implement change, even if you get, let's say you get three out of five school board members or four out of seven school board members. Um, it's really, really difficult to kind of direct this this bureaucracy that is hostile to your ideas. It's very similar to Donald Trump trying to direct the FBI, right? If you don't have the ability to hire and fire, for example, on on at will, which most employment contracts and districts do not, right? So you, you just there's a limited number of tools. You're not like Elon Musk taking over Twitter, where you can just fire seventy percent of the people. So it, it's very difficult to direct these bureaucracies. The difference is, I think. We just need to change the incentives so that people's jobs become dependent on listening to the people who are actually ought to be accountable. They ought to be accountable to. And in the case of, of the federal bureaucracy, that's voters and the president that they elect. Um, but in the case of schools, right, it's parents. And so th there's an enormous leverage aspect to school choice that I think doesn't get talked about enough. Like those meetings in, in all of those school boards across the country, the meetings with principals, superintendents, right, where you have, you know, dozens or, or hundreds of parents in the same school who have come together who say, like, I don't 
want this in the school, if suddenly those people leaving means that the school budget gets halved, um, that is a very different conversation and their, their, their concerns are going to be on average going to be addressed a lot in, in, a, in a lot more serious manner than when essentially schools have free reign to right now to ignore parents because not one of them is going to lose their job for doing so. It doesn't matter how many angry parents are coming out to school board meetings. Not a single teacher who's showing these, these videos is going to be fired. Right. So at the end of the day, you have no control over what people do. And so I think school choice is probably the most important yeah. reform in that sense. And then finally, I know I've gone on a while about school choice. No, no. But no, no. Um, I finally, I think it's really important for the right to seize our portion of public money. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's um, that's what we're not doing. You know, we, we have no, you know, in being in this scene for a little while, and coming from the other side, I'm like a, you know, advertising guy. Um, it is just absolutely insane how much more money the other side has, both public money, private money. It's like, and our guys have so little <laughs> and we just don't have an economic backbone to anything we're doing. And there, there's no incentive structure. There's no even really good like um, advertising backbone for the content that we're creating um, and everything that there is, is compromised, right? Because all the advertisers just control the, the uh, messaging. So I think you're, it's like thinking of ways to set up economic pipelines for public funds is like one of the best things we can do. But how yeah, I do mean- you do that? Because it, it, as you're saying, it's like, I mean, school choice is one way, but it's like how, you know, we give, you we give yeah. money to our guys and we take away money from their guys. It's, yeah. it's right, <laughs> right now, that. right now, no, so right now, for example, I think education is a really uh, an instructive example, right? We spend $800 billion a year on K-12 instruction in this country. We're actually the, don't listen to people on the left who say that American education is underfunded. It's not underfunded. It's, it's per pupil. It's either the second or third um, depending on the year, right? Um, yeah. Second or third among the PISA countries in terms of per pupil funding, right? Um, and the countries that are ahead of us are very small. <laughs> it just doesn't make yeah. sense. Anyway, um, we spend between fourteen and fifteen thousand dollars a year, and this does not include additional COVID funds. Okay, but this is a baseline fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars a year on average per student. But if you go to wow. a lot of these cities, you go to a lot like New York, it's closer to thirty, right? Wow. DC, it's pushing thirty five thousand dollars a year for some of the worst public schools in the nation, right? So um, there's an $800 billion pie. And not only is that not going to educate Americans, it's going to, you know, it, it is literally going to our enemies to indoctrinate children. And why shouldn't we seize our portion of this, right? I think school choice is the best mechanism for doing that. But um, you, you literally send that money to the parents who will then, as you point out, go to a Chabad school, right? Or will go to a the average school. private school, yeah. right? The average private school in America um, is not one of these ultra woke like Manhattan schools that goes for 60K, right? Um, the average private school in America costs $11,000, which by the way, is less than the average public school. In other words, the average private school is actually cheaper. Um, and they are yeah, providing a so product. So they're competing funny. against free yeah. Right. On the point of entry. And people are still going to them largely because they actually do offer a different set of values. So the average private school costs 11K in tuition and is attached to a house of worship. 
Yeah. And right. those are the schools that we should be funneling money to. Yeah. Um, and, and it is no different. There is like, it, it, there, there's no uh, notion of neutral. There is no such thing as a neutral education. The entire point of education is bringing up a child to understand the world in a certain way. Right. And the idea that the public schools are neutral, whereas, you know, our parochial schools or private schools are are sectarian or um, or, or in some inappropriate font of public money. Um, there's been some really great Supreme Court precedent laid down in the last 10 years, 15 years on this, and even in the last two years. Um, I don't think there's there's any constitutional uh, problems left with with directing money towards private schools through the medium of parent choice. Um, and and it, yeah, we should even aside from the sort of religious aspect of this. Fundamentally, you should be in favor of school choice if you believe that the average American parent is less woke than the average teacher. And it seems very, very difficult to deny to me that that's true. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely seems like a good opportunity. I'm trying to just like think of other opportunities that are like that, but it definitely seems like and I think they're figuring it out. And just eliminate Florida. You can eliminate uh you can both use public funds and eliminate them for universities, right? I'm, I would like to see the student loan program disappear altogether for all kinds of reasons. It hasn't achieved its objective. There are fewer kids of working class backgrounds on campus than there were when it started uh, back in the 1960s. Um, and it has basically allowed the university system to become the powerful gatekeepers that they have been able to be. Um, they are almost entirely backed by federal Bonus. Like they're, they're, the student loans in our current system would not exist to the level that they do in a private market, right? So it is a, a difficult proposition for a 17-year-old to walk into Wells Fargo and say, you know, I would like to take out a $120,000 loan. Um, and that's maybe less true now. I mean, as the structures change and as it becomes very, very rewarding to be a DEI officer, some of those calculations maybe change even even in the private yeah. market. But we wouldn't be here to begin with. We wouldn't have 40 plus percent of the population attending at least some college, right? We wouldn't be here to begin with if the federal government hadn't massively subsidized that track. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I again, about like reseizing federal, I, I, I think we should pay for student loan bailouts by taxing universities. I have a piece over the American mind about that, but I, I think we should just tax universities for the loan problem that they themselves have benefited from. And it has the pleasant side effect of punishing our enemies. That's a great idea. That's a very good idea. And and that, yeah, it's not necessarily giving us money, but it's at least taking it away from them and, and like taking their pipeline uh, from them, which I think is a, a very good idea for sure. Um. So uh, returning to the the female male thing, um, you you had a, a another thing where you were talking about female volunteerism that I thought was interesting. That like um, what you were saying that like in public squares everywhere, there's like a there's like a statue generally that says something like this was paid for by the local women's council so this was like something that women used to be doing more they used to be much more involved in like volunteering and earlier you'd kind of said that like a lot of that female instinct has now been shoehorned into the managerial private email sending class um so i guess what i'm wondering is like how can we de like return 
why don't more women see it like you? Like, why are more why why don't more women understand that spending their lives as like a big tech email sender is not um, really satisfying to this urge that formerly was satisfied by sort of tending to the community? I mean, I guess I have a two part answer to that. The first part is I think COVID really has uh, killed the girl boss as an archetype. Um, I think it's, I don't think women younger than me, I'm 35. I don't think women in their twenties, uh, are as sort of unironically on the girl boss path as they were in my generation. Um, and, and I think a lot of that has been just the, the big reveal of COVID. It was that actually when you strip out a lot of the the fancy, uh, you know, the the conferences and the flights all over and, and the chat at the, um, you know, in the office and, and the happy hours and everything else. When you when you strip that stuff out, it's actually very lonely, lonely life. Um, and I think a lot of people realize that. Um, so on the one hand, I do think like almost beating up on the girl boss archetype, I really feel like it's, it's passe because um, I don't think you see a lot of that. That doesn't mean that people are becoming conservative it just means that they um they're rejecting that archetype and now they'll i mean you, all these other uh sort of role models are bubbling up right like the bimbo role model <laughs> like um so it doesn't necessarily mean you know quote unquote return in what any is way. the bimbo role model what is oh, that? i think like there's a lot more like young girls e-girls and stuff that posting they're like i they're proud to basically subsist um using only their sexual power right yeah like yeah. it's it's a point of pride for them um in the same way that like my generation would not ever openly be proud about that um we would we wanted the like uh or at least the archetype was we wanted to be like yes we wanted to be the girl boss in the office like we wanted to be treated exactly like men we wanted to you know govern a staff of 200 right um yeah. i think that's not the archetype and the the goal um of gen z and i think that's a positive thing that doesn't mean that what replaces it will be any better necessarily so um i asked for why you know why more women i mean i, I think we do live in a, a a time where um we lie to people about a lot of important things and and the question is uh whether that's actually you know kind um we talk a lot about empathy but it, it isn't empathetic it isn't kind to lie to women um, and tell them that they can live their lives like men and have the same results. It's going to have different results. I think we're going to see um, we're going to see what happens with with my generation that made a, a lot of choices, um, which made the choice not not to marry, not to have families uh, in the same rate as as previous generations. And you're going to have a lot of like single forty five year old women. Um, and what what they do uh, and, and how they deal with that, I think is going to be very indicative of where we go. So I think one, and I think it's going to be very like just split off, right? So one cohort is going to pour their lives into activism and that's what's going to give them purpose and meaning. And this is why uh, the single women have a 37 point democratic leaning, right? Um, and and that's why the whole all the phenomenons we talked about with the you know the longhouse like EPA administrators and and all of that like some portion of these women will do that, um, 
and we're going to have to politically deal with that as a, a you know body politic oh, we're going to have to deal with so, it. it what's so insane and i say this on every podcast is this is an absolutely unprecedented problem like that that we have no frame of reference for dealing with this thing you're talking about because no one's ever dealt with it like right now like trying to disrupt this female engine of activism and power right to put it very simply we women have never even been close to this powerful before right anywhere in well, any particular, I, I would say particularly for one not in a sort of public domain yeah and two that women without families have never had this power right, right. so like everyone's familiar with the idea of the matriarch yeah. right but this isn't mate this isn't a matriarchy um yeah so no. it, the priorities of the women who are going to wield that power are going to be quite different and there's 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 a flip side also with the, the men right like if you have a bunch of single women you're also going to have on the flip side a lot of a lot of single men and i think for whatever particular reasons, I think mostly related to technology, I think you're, you're seeing more of a like dispiriting on on the male side, right? Where um, young men are basically dropping out; they're becoming the neats, right? Neither education nor yeah. training, right? Yeah, um, the end zone. It's yeah. It's, so you're gonna you're gonna see the rise of of that because because of of female sexual impulses being what they are because of the app culture being one like combining with that in a particular way. Um, I think I said on a different podcast that I, I think we've essentially returned to the harem yeah, polygamous the, model well, that you, that, you, that pre yeah. pre. You call um, it. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to. You Go call ahead. it the. Uh, you call it the like the it's a it's like a harem, but it's like a temporal harem it's like a it's a harem in a row right it's like uh, that's what the apps yeah, do cereal with, yeah cereal sorry the cereal harem yeah right so what is the cereal harem well i mean it's it's still basically a small percentage of very attractive very powerful men um stopping up you know 80 percent. if you look at the, the dating app data and stuff it's about 80 percent of women um they're just not holding them contiguously right uh they're not they're they're not paying a, a harem and living in a palace contiguously what they're doing yeah. is serially sleeping with a lot of these women without any uh, incentive to commit right because yeah. there's always the next one on the app and the next one um and it's arguable whether that's actually worse than being in a harem um yeah. but, <laughs> uh but but then the, the rest of the men are are really getting shut out in the cold yeah. And they have sort of a choice about whether to be dispirited or bitter about it. And well, I think you're seeing yeah. people taking both directions, like some men just completely technologically dropping out, playing video games to give a sense of, of purpose, like a completing of tasks. You don't really see you don't really see men those, those kinds of men like um, you know applying themselves strongly in the office either. Like it's, it's an interesting thing. The, the women are girl bossing, but the men are not boy bossing. No, um, no, no. It's but, it's uh, beautiful ones. It's John Calhoun's. It's perfect beautiful ones uh, experiment. Are you familiar with that? The beautiful ones. Oh, it's this incredible experiment with mice that John Calhoun did, and he made like a mouse utopia, and he gave the mice everything they wanted in this like massive thing. And he started. They started with like you know four couples of mice, and the population absolutely exploded to like four hundred. 
And then like inexplicably, it absolutely collapsed and every mouse died within like the next couple of months. And what happened, the reason they call it the beautiful ones experiment is the gender roles got all screwed up. Right. So the male and the like 60 per, or like yeah, 60 percent of the men were fighting all the women like all the time. Uh, and like, yeah, they started at, all the gender roles got screwy. Um, but 40 percent of the men just stopped interacting with the other mice entirely. And they just stayed in their own little area and just groomed themselves all the time. So like John Calhoun would like look in on the mice and he'd see like these terrible torn up mice in one area. And in the other, they'd be like like these perfect fluffy, like male mice that he called the beautiful ones uh, because they just like checked out and they just didn't do anything. They just groomed themselves. And like, that was it. And I feel like that's exactly like what frog Twitter is. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like guys who are checking out and they're just like lifting weights and like looking in the mirror. And I don't know if I would describe frog Twitter as the in that in your your response uh, dichotomy of the mice. Like I think a lot of the frog Twitter people are actually like sort of doing something about it. Um, so and- I look, I am one of them. I I you know I I always end up back with them, even when I try and be more mainstream. Um, so I'm not insulting them, but I, what I am saying, I do feel like the um, there is a beautiful onesification problem with some of the guys on on the right in Frog Twitter because they don't um, they don't want to leave the cage, you know they they, they don't want to leave they don't want to like get and like as you're saying they don't want to fight the girl bosses, you know I I, I think there's hmm. I I I do think that there's there's at this point so much pent-up actual competence um and sort of uh male quality yeah right um quality people who are so i actually don't know that the profile maybe maybe it's both but like to the extent that i've met a lot of these anon twitter accounts in person um I, i they tend to be like successful you know interesting people but um so I'm sure there is like an incel component to it, but I, I just, I, I think we oversell maybe that component of it. And I think what they are is tired of living in a a sort of corporate world that, for example, to name one of them, that, that rewards incompetence and like DEI checkboxing. And that's a very frustrating, you know, it, it's frustrating to live in the longhouse, right? For somebody who Absolutely. is, is no, competent. It's, it's, and, it's, un- and- it's impossible. It's it's I I worked in full. It's like a it's like a balancing thing when it gets to when the power structure becomes a certain percentage female, the entire thing flips over and it becomes like a different. I worked at a like almost entirely female uh, marketing agency, like the pharma marketing agency, and it was so crazy and so like completely counterintuitive to me. Like, and that they would, the entire purpose of it was to like have a good reputation. Like nobody cared about the work product. Everybody just had Zoom meetings all day where they complained about being, how busy they were, complaining about how tired they were, talking about their pets. And it was just like, there was no relationship to the work we were doing. And it was like, so shocking. And I was like, man, like a man, every man in that in that environment was either a legacy old guy 
who'd been there for like, you know, 25 years and was just like collecting a paycheck and like showing up and blah, 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 or like a total cuck bitch, like a, like a total, like, uh, you know, just soy boy. And any man in that who tried to work with them would immediately quit. Like I had like four people join my team and they immediately would just be like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> because it's like you as a man, you cannot exist in that environment. It is built to destroy you, you know? And so, yeah, I, I don't blame these guys for checking out at all. I'm certainly not saying that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, Heather McDonald wrote about this in City Journal uh, with regard to university, which I think is very similar to what you're saying. She said, uh, female students and administrators often exist in a codependent relationship united by the concepts of victim identity and trauma. For universal fe university females, there is not apparently strength in numbers. The more female ranks increase, the more we hear about a mass nervous breakdown on campus. Um, female students disproportionately patronize the burgeoning university wellness centers, massage therapies, relaxation oases, calming corners, and healing circles. That's really good. And and so, yeah. I I think you're saying something. It's it, so. The so uh, the more important part, actually, let me read just one more piece of this because I think it's relevant. When students claim to be failed by ideas they do not they disagree with, the feminized bureaucracy does not tell them to grow up and get a grip. It validates them. Um, so I, I think that is part of the dynamic. That again, I I don't think that I don't think that women are any worse than men. I mean, I have a very uh, sort of equal opportunity negative view about human nature it's that these particular female qualities and feminine qualities um are not correctly applied in a, in a bureaucratic and and like in a state um sort of function or in in a managerial economy um what you end up having is this sort of burgeoning tower of bs um where we have no idea what percentage, uh, some significant percentage, but I don't have no, I couldn't put a number on it, right? Um, some significant percentage of our GDP is just complete horseshit. Oh, like it, it is just, it is, it is people being paid. It's clicking $130,000 a year to have yeah. a series of Zoom meetings that actually yes. has no uh, relation to the value of the product at the end of the day, which is zero by the way, relation, zero. It's clicking buttons on SaaS programs. That's what they do. You start one of these jobs, you get a list of 25 SaaS programs, like the project management tool, this chat tool, the, the documents tool. And all they do is they click the button saying that they've completed a task on the task thing. And that's all they do. And then they have Zoom meetings. They don't ever actually do anything. It's like, it's like they, they, there's no actual so this is, this product. Is why Elon Musk, this is why Elon Musk was able to fire 70% yeah. of right, Twitter right. and keep, keep, and, and I, I do have some hope that this tech contraction will do something good, right? Which is, you know, you don't obviously don't want, um, you know, don't want to laugh at people who lose their jobs or whatever, but a lot of the jobs that are like, I do think that even some of the non-political or apolitical CEOs, when they start to look at what Musk has done with Twitter, which has all of its own problems and, and sort of political size constraints, but when they just look at the bottom line and say, well, he was able to cut 70% of payroll and keep the company working. Um, I, I mean, we have started to see stories coming out of like the DEI departments are starting to downsize. The number of DEI jobs are not um, what they used to be. There's there's a glut of people with all the credentials to do these jobs and um, and be the political enforcement officers of the regime. And there just isn't uh, there isn't the money in the private sector right now as they go through a sort of contraction and recession to pay for a lot of this BS. Um, now, it could all come crashing down if basically all that would need to happen 
is that the the civil rights apparatus would have to come down and say, well, those all those people you fired, they're disproportionately female, they're disproportionately people of color, minorities, right? Um, you know, Elon Musk, the picture that he took of who was left in the in the coding room yeah. of Twitter, it's like it's like twenty five <laughs> Asian and Pakistani guys and like. And like one and woman they all have like they're all like kind of dysgenic like they have yeah. they all have like guts and stuff and it's like that's who keeps the lights on around here you know like that's who does the actual work you know so right. the united states is incredibly wealthy um and we can do a lot of bs for a long time because of that wealth uh but but the the bs doesn't generate wealth of nations right um ultimately attending zoom meetings does not generate the wealth of nations. Um, and so there, there is a natural sort of stopping point. Although as, as I told Oren uh, when I went on his podcast, it's not a great, it's not sort of a great comfort. It shouldn't be a great comfort that things that can't go on forever won't uh, because for our lifetimes or children's lifetimes or grandchildren's lifetimes, you know, the United States is so wealthy that we could easily, you know, become complete clowns, still be the, the tallest midget on the global stage and like implement a kind of empire based on nonsense. Um, and yeah, it'll come crashing down maybe in 80 years and 100 years. We'll all be dead. That's what's so, so scary, right? It's, what's so scary is that the infrastructure that has been built can last for a while. You know, as people, I think, as you say, the Soviet Union lasted for 100 years, right? As a, as a complete 80, joke or 80, whatever. And so it's like, you know, it can it can rot so much more than it already is. Uh, did you see the story about Whittier College? Um, I think I read about this. That's the, the college has basically contracted, right? Um, because they, they used to have a bunch of students and then they, they became like social justice. Actually, it was interesting because they, they, they basically changed over their student tuition for grants from various foundations. No. Well, so a, a black female, like woke, you know, commissar or whatever you want to call them, uh, took control. And she gutted all the sports programs. She like just completely destroyed the school. And uh, last week, an article came out in the LA Times that's just the perfect. It's just so it's like such a white pill. It's it's like the perfect story because it's like she destroyed everything that the parents wanted. Everybody left. the The donations went way down. Literally, it's talking about like fetid bathrooms. Like, uh, like the campus is just like dead. Like, it's like, it used to be this lively place. Like everybody's left. It's just rotting to absolute zero, but they keep the lights on because Mackenzie Bezos just gave them $15 million for no reason, you know, because of their achievements in DEI. So it's like, that was a great example of this is going to happen to everything. You know, everything is gonna, like in the Soviet Union, it'll eventually, this is communism basically, Right. It's going to go that way. What just sucks is like, how long, how long do we have to wait around for this to happen? You know, like it's just going to be such a slow death. Look, the the only optimistic and it's optimistic within certain parameters (laughs) um, (laughs) take that I have is that, I mean, I I don't believe in the directionality of history, right? Right. Either in the Hegelian or the Marx sense, like, um, life is nasty the state of nature is is nasty british and short um most people have lived under much worse conditions still um not just materially but even in other ways 
um, in terms of, you know, for example, loss of family and, and uh, just dealing with death in a day to day basis in a way that we don't. Um, so considering that, right, the optimism is the United States is still a very young country. Um, and actually, this is this is a take that I'm sure is going to be like clipped and and taken out of context, uh, but I'm going to give it anyway, which is actually I think I think the sort of collapse of the U.S. male population into, you know, video games, porn, obesity, um, uh, not that women aren't also obese. That's not my point. My, my point is the fact that men have like sort of checked out um, an entire class of men has checked out uh, to me. I, as sort of devastating as it is to see the the national um, life expectancy go down because of these deaths of despair, essentially people in their thirties and forties, right. Um, dying these deaths of despair and living these very uh, sort of desperate lives. I, I think that it indicates that it's not a slow decline for us, right. It's it, fundamentally people are dissatisfied with what's on the table in a way that I think, for example, in, in older civilizations like European countries, um, that that sort of the idea that 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 there is a, even some kind of more vital or better way to live has so long disappeared that people aren't really particularly unhappy with their lot. Whereas Americans are are responding to this new modern world um, in ways that are like sort of acute, right? That are creating acute problems. Things, this is a young country and things can happen very fast here, right? Like, don't, 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 uh, I think we can get too stuck on, on sort of cycles of, of, uh, empire and decline and hard men make good times and good mm, times yeah. produce weak men and weak men make hard times, so on. Like that, that might be true in some larger sense, but the cycle that that's operating on might be a thousand years. History can still surprise you. This country can still surprise you. Things can change very, very quickly here. Um, because it is like sort of still not the, the American spirit is not sclerotic, at least yeah. not as sclerotic as, as uh, many, I think European countries and yeah. things, things could still radically look different in 10 years. Um, how exactly we get there. I still, I, I, you know, I'm as negative as anybody about our current trajectory. Um, but, and, and it could snap in, in a way that's like even uglier than what, what we're experiencing now. That's certainly a possibility. Things can always get worse, but uh, I, I don't think there's this sort of stasis in the cards for us. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging. That's very inspiring. I, I think that that's a very inspiring uh, perspective. And I, I, I share it. You know, I think um, if there wasn't anything left, if there wasn't still a lot left, then idiots wouldn't be able to to run it at all. Right. I mean, it's and I think that you're right. Hopefully, if we can just peel off this layer of woke insane people uh we can get back to something relatively quickly i i hope you're right um do you think that so like return i mean my immediate thought goes to just like how do you convince the single women how do you convince the single women like how do you get them over here and i i guess it's like if they are truly hypergamous this is actually something i really wanted to ask you if the single women are truly hypergamous then actually, isn't this life exactly what they want? Like, aren't they happy? No, because the, the, what the hypergamous women actually want is commitment <clears throat> from high value men. And they they're not the, getting uh, that. Okay. Right? Right. So, so that. I think that the, the biggest, the biggest winners are 
of, of the, the sexual revolution are, are a small percentage of um, alpha men and then um, you know young and beautiful women but to the extent that young and beautiful women are not getting the commitment because that 10% of men has now the entire entirety of the Rolodex to swipe yeah. through even more than in a, a sexually conservative culture uh, yeah. they're not getting that commitment or um they're finding themselves on the on the other end of of their sort of sexual market value which is not the only way to value human beings to be clear but it is highly relevant for the the conversation that we're having um no i I, and i i don't know if it's possible to convince that that cohort of women i think first on any on an individual basis anything is possible but like in terms of of, uh broad political strokes i doubt it's it's i doubt we're going to ever see that demographic you know, sort of voting differently, for example. Um, but what I, I do think is that they may become a cautionary exa- a cautionary tale to the next generation of women. And we'll, so we'll see whether those lessons are lost on, for example, Gen Z, or whether um, despite a more ironic posture towards girl bossing, they actually end up making a lot of the similar mistakes. Um, I, I will say one more thing about like this whole hypergamy thing and, and apps and dating and... Um, I, I think there, you know, I don't know how to quote unquote return. Um, and I'm not saying that the 1950s, I mean, in many ways, the 1950s were quite progressive. Um, but I do think that there's been several things that have just made us, uh, made the average man and woman, several cultural trends that have just made the average man and the average woman much less attractive to each other. And that's, that's like, that's a big problem, right? If you add, especially if you add apps on top of that, be it, you know, the average woman in the 1950s who was on the hunt for a husband um, was in her early 20s when she started looking. Um, a, a vast majority of women were were slim and normal body weight. Um, and you know what? Ninety percent of women at age 22 uh, who are not fat um, and are are sort of, uh, especially in the culture that that it encouraged some some feminine traits like that is actually that that is a woman that most men would be happy to be with and on on the flip side um in the pool of men right uh we did have a much more a culture that encouraged masculinity in men a, a style of parenting that um encouraged boys to to take risks and uh, to develop certain qualities and then also um to to view providing for for a future wife and and a home and children as um you know a, a something that's like baseline and required in other words the average man was was more masculine you know n- not not everyone is like this sort of obviously like there's never been a time where all men were sort of this Nietzschean perfection of like <laughs> yeah um whatever but the average man was more masculine than he is today and more able to hold a conversation um, more secure in what he had to offer women. These are all things that are attractive to women. So the average man and the average woman are would actually be two people who are well matched and, and actually can make like a, a relatively happy life together, as opposed to the huge delta between the basic biological constraints of what women want and what men want, um, being sort of uh, misdirected for decades of life and then having to have such a huge delta between what what you theoretically want and, and what's out there. I, 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 I think just the average person was more likely to find someone who was attractive to them. And you could add into this 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 uh, 
you can add into this bucket, the fact that women have many, many fewer sexual partners. So. Yeah. You, you had a thing in another podcast about uh, the fact that people don't meet at bars anymore. Oh, and that, yeah. that was a way, that was a way for men to stand out more uh, in, in a lot of ways and to give a sense of a vibe and to be attractive to a woman in a way um, that uh, you can never be on an app. And, and I think that that's largely been lost. I think like a lot of you know, people don't really meet that way as much anymore, um, which is really sad and, and really sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hardly sort of traditional, right, to meet in a bar, but just to see how we've changed just in the last 10 or 15 years, um, <clears throat> it, it it's, I think men often project, like, especially in our space, right, men project how they think about women, and vice versa, right, it's the same thing with, with women who are like, I have a six-figure job and a condo, and like, I have my, my, you know, I have my life together. Why isn't a man, you know, um, why aren't men like jumping over themselves to date me? Right. And, and then that's just, that's not what men value in a mate, right? It's not bad things. They're just, you know, they're not what's on any of the, even the top 10 qualities that, that men are looking for in a mate, but that's what women potentially want. So they project, right. Um, I think the same thing is happening with, with men, especially in our space where they're like, Oh, women don't want to date you unless you're six feet tall, six six pack abs, make six yeah. figures, right? Um, I I think that a lot of those preferences, there's nothing women like better than rejecting, like like setting parameters for themselves and rejecting a bunch of men. Like that makes women feel really good, and that's what the apps like, you know, facilitate and and put on hyperdrive, right? Um, as opposed to in person, like I, if you ask women in the abstract, do they want men who are six feet tall? And say yes um but that's actually like a soft preference yeah and when somebody that you meet at a bar is funny or like you know has a bunch of cool friends they're making jokes like they're they're like uh you know a good time or or they're demonstrating some other qualities that that those preferences are mostly soft for most women um, but if you ask them straight up on an app then they can have the ability to screen out everyone under six feet or everyone yeah. under right, it's, right. it's just it makes what are soft preferences much much harder so that they never even you know it, they never even have a shot essentially to um to to like in, in that 1950s way to meet someone who actually might have a lot of qualities that are attractive to them but they're screened out from the beginning because they have the ability to on the apps and then the the flip side of that is like yeah women can screen a lot of men and then they get if, if they don't get the commitment from the guys that they, the only like tiny percentage of guys that, that met their criteria, um, then they end up, they end up on the other side of it um, with very little sexual market power. And I mean, I'm describing this all as sort of in, in an autistic and dorky way, but like, <laughs> I, I do think there's some truth in these, in, in these uh, sort of abstract analysis of how people behave with each other. And it's actually worse for those women because all they've done throughout their 19th like throughout their 20s has been sleeping with very high value men who don't want to commit so like of course when they go out with on a date with somebody it seems like a disappointment yeah and they have this illusion of an influx of a million leads but really uh it's not real so yeah so they get to feel like here's my characteristics that i'm not gonna uh, gonna go by. I I actually blame men though to be honest equally as much as women because it, it's 
the male has genuinely become uh, afraid. You know, men have become really afraid. Your average everyday man. And I hang out with it. You know, I hang out with these groups of like normie men. And the stuff they do is just completely mind boggling to me. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, just the, their standards and the things that they allow and the fear they have of, of being seen wrong by, by women uh, just to me is, is I completely blame them for it. And they're just very soft. And I think, again, this is a big part, part of, to return just to, uh, to the original point is like, men have a very difficult time being like harsh to women, which is why this transition that we're about to have to deal with, with women in more power than ever before is going to be so weird and so different than anything else uh, we've experienced before. But okay. Um, anyway, let's wrap this up. So um, we're high noon podcast. Why is it called high noon, by the way? Uh, so there's, there's three reasons. Hi, so, um, you know, that there's a, a movie high noon, uh, Western from 1956. Uh, I love the Western, but, um, it's also became a symbol of America. And I mentioned my parents come from communist Poland. Um, so that, that image that like iconic American image of the American cowboy facing odds alone, um, that became part of the solidarity movement. So they, put out some posters so they did one of the posters that they would put out when they held this election that ultimately voted out communists out of power and, and obviously there was a great risk in going to the polls it, it was basically telling people like this is your high noon oh, um cool. and i think that i think that applies uh applies to us to some degree um in in this country and and despite the optimism i had before i mean i think there are deep and structural institutional power in this country wielded by women but also also by men but um in a way that's that's very very difficult to overcome um with with mere elections or with kind of especially within the parameters that we hold them um so i do think there there needs to be a kind of i think we are we are at a high noon or, or if you prefer the uh the more depressing version is the one minute to midnight. The one minute to midnight. Right? I, no, that's inspiring. You're a very inspiring person, Adas. I, I, I like I, you. I think you are. You really are. I don't you, think so. I feel good. I feel better talking to you. Um, because I think that's you something have, I've never gotten as a Slav, by the way, that people feel better after talking to me. Usually, really? feel worse, yeah, so. you should be drinking vodka. And, <laughs> and being um, okay, cool. So, High Noon Podcast, uh, Independent Women's Forum. Anywhere else people should find you? Is there a Substack? Yeah, no, I don't have a Substack. Maybe I okay. should, but I, I just I haven't. Um, you can find my work in a bunch of different outlets, um, but you can find all of it on Twitter. So uh, I'm at Ida's Felcher F E L T S C H E R. But you can put it in Stepman; it'll it'll find me on the thing, unless they decide to to remove my ability in the search function again. But <laughs> yeah, right. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, you coming on. Thanks so much for having me.